We are, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, and uh, so I invite you to turn there. You know, people sign up for military service for a lot of different reasons. Some of them just need a job and, uh, you know, guaranteed uh, paycheck. Some, it was a family thing to do. Others are willing to fight for a cause or willing to die for a cause to make something right in this world. And most military members leave behind the life and the loves that they cherished, and they go through rigorous training, and they often uh, go somewhere far away to fight for a cause, an ideal. Some are often a long way from home. Some come home changed, and some come home wounded, and some come home in a casket. Some never come home. Some come home and turn around and go back again for a second tour of duty. So this Veterans Day weekend, uh, we're, we're celebrating really because Jesus is the ultimate veteran. I mean, he was on a mission. He served and he sacrificed and he suffered and he died in a fight to give you ultimate freedom. So the question I want to look at in our text today in 1 John 3 is, why did Jesus come to earth? There's three reasons here. Number one, God sent Jesus to earth on a search and rescue mission to find sin and to take it away. To find sin and to take it away. I mean, there were several objectives. He's looking for the casualties, for the lost, for the broken, for the captives. And in John, uh, 1 John 3, starting verse 4, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin. And in him there's no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is. Sin, as we've talked about, is anything that we might think or say or do that falls short of the glory of God. Sin is choosing, I'm going to do it my way, not God's way. Sin breaks laws sometimes, and it tears hearts all the time, especially God's heart. And he's talking here not just about an individual sin, but if you do something once and then you do it again and again, pretty soon it becomes a habit, a pattern, a practice of sinning, especially when God's Holy Spirit whispers in the ear of a believer and says, Psst, let go of that. Don't do that. Or start doing such, and, and we hear that, and instead of saying, God, let me do it your way, we say, ah, I want to do this my way. And we resist and we defend why we should be able to do it our way instead of God's way. That's what he's talking about, this practice of sinning, of continually living in a, in a sinful way that you know is wrong, but you're just going to persist. Versus a sin that grieves the heart of God, so he mentions, it brings it to your attention through his spirit, and and you bring it to him in your own grief to say, please forgive me and help me move on. Jesus appeared the first time in this world to deal with the problem of sin, to take it away. Your sin, my sin. You can't live the life that God intended you to live when there is sin in your life. You can't be your best when on your lips and on your hands or in your heart there's sin. I mean, think about this. Every parent loves their kids, wants them to be their best. Wants them to grow up and to get an education and to be a productive member of society. So you send it when they get old enough, you send them off to school, and then you get a call from the school. You get a report: your kid is being bullied at school. Well, that's a problem. Your kid is supposed to be at school to learn and to grow and to mature, and being bullied can prevent a lot of goodness. It can cause fear. It can cause rejection. It can cause loneliness to grow, and nobody's going to learn and nobody's going to thrive in that kind of environment. So what do you do as the parent who loves and who cares? You show up at school. 
You ask questions. You somehow trigger change in the situation so that the bullying stops. You interfere. That's what Jesus did for you and for me. He saw our condition in this world. God said we have to do something. He sent Jesus here because you and I are being bullied by sin. He says, i got to do something to trigger a change in the situation and intervene. Jesus did exactly that. He showed up. He appeared to take away our sin. He has no sin of his own, but he showed up to clean up the mess made by my sin, by your sin, and it reopens the line of communication with God. So what is our proper response to what Jesus did? We've talked about it on a previous week, but in case you forgot, confess our sin, forsake our sin, and abide in him to remain in him, to, to live in him. Jesus came to take away sin. Second reason, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. Verse 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, the devil was created by God and uh, lived in heaven and uh, was... Uh, uh, one of the most spectacular beings that God created. Uh, but he has limits on his power that are placed by God. He's not like Jesus where he and God's spirit there where he could be everywhere talking to everybody at the same time. He cannot. At some point before the earth was even created, Satan had this proud thought, I am so wonderful, I'm going to be God. And at that point he was expelled from heaven. So since then his goal has been has has been to bring as much grief as he can to God, and he does that by getting God's children to sin, which breaks God's heart. His primary weapon of attack is deception. He tells lies. He lies to you. You know why? He's a liar. That's why. He tells little half-truth uh, half lies, little white lies, big black lies, bold-faced lies. He's a liar. He lies. He tries to make the lies look like the truth. He's out to deceive you. Don't listen to him. His days are numbered. His power was broken when Jesus died on the cross. It's like, though, a person who's been, say, shot in the leg who can still fight, though they've been, they've been wounded. But God has prepared hell for him and those who follow him and reject God. Now, he has been around a lot longer than you or me, and he's a lot smarter than we are. And you, by yourself, against him, you don't stand a chance. So don't try it. That's why you need Jesus. That's why you need God's Spirit alive in you. Jesus said, greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident that who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, this little phrase at the beginning of verse 9, no one born of God, this first shows up in chapter 2, in verse 29. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, born of God. To be born of God is what makes it possible for us to know God. It gives us the power to live by God's Spirit. It's the only reason that we can remain in him. Now, this didn't start with you. It didn't start with me. It, it started with God. It's his idea. It's what the theologian John Stott called a divine begetting, the imparting of life of God. I mean, just in the Bible, there's lots of family trees. 
You know, Abraham begat Isaac, who begat Jacob, who begat Judah, and so forth. And spiritually, God begat his children. Now, in creation, it says that God created men and women in the image of God. He placed his DNA in us. We are made in his image. There's something about us that draws everybody to God. There's just a God-shaped vacuum inside that can't be satisfied any other way, even though we try. And then sin entered the world. And the relationship was broken. And so God comes back in salvation with this act of God be begetting or giving his seed. It's a picture of procreation, of God uh, planting himself in his children. So this consequence of being born of God in the life of the believer, what difference does it make to us? Well, in chapter 2, verse 9, it says we begin to practice righteousness, which we can't do in our own strength. In chapter 3, verse 9, that we're looking at right here, it says Christians do not continue to live in sin. In chapter 10, verse 10, it's that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. In chapter 4, it's you believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's God come in human flesh. See, false religions in this world try to slip Jesus from that spot, maybe in just a little bit. He is a God or he is a son of God rather than giving him his rightful place on the throne as king of kings and lord of lords, as fully human and fully God, the one who paid with his own life for you and for me. Put him on that place in your own heart. Are you a Christian? Are you a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? It's not enough to know the right things. It's not enough to believe the right things. If you're a child of God, it will lead you to righteous living. That living righteously proves that Christ who is righteous is alive in you. Our lives will show the truth. Are you a child of God or a child of the devil? John is really challenging him here. Who's your daddy? All right? In 1929, shortly before the Depression started, there was a little baby boy born into a family in Michigan. The family already had two children. And the dad who worked hard in the union and in the auto plant um, to provide for his family um, uh, was kind of overcome by this, that they were having a third child that year. And uh, the third baby in the economic crisis just overwhelmed him, basically. And more uh, than once as the years went by, he would come home from work discouraged, inebriated, and he would begin to yell at his wife and his children uh, and accuse his wife of having had an affair. And, uh, and that's why they had this third child. Well, their yelling matches were overheard by the little guy, and as he grew up, he felt rejected and unwanted and uh, unclaimed and uh, rejected by his own father. So at eight years old, 1937, he actually found a job as uh, washing dishes in a restaurant. And um, they let him, there was a cot in the restaurant in the back room, and they let him sleep there at night, and he ended up moving to the restaurant and lived there for 10 years until he graduated from high school. And uh, then he went on to give a lady a ride to California in her car and uh, decided he could stay here, and he found the Lord, and he uh, found the woman who he married who became my mother, and uh, he became a pastor and a missionary and a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Now, years later, after his parents had died, and he received all the family photos, looking through the photos, there's a picture of my father's father that looks exactly like my dad. They could have been twins. So all that yelling, all that accusation, all that talk was for naught. Where you come from and who you belong to will show up in your life. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. 
And John asks, who's your daddy? Is he God the Father? Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Or is it the devil? Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, this is a theme from John of uh, who is your, your father because it's going to make a huge difference. And he tells this story in the book of John on Jesus, that Jesus at the height of his popularity. He has just fed 5,000 men plus women and children with one little boy's lunch. He's just walked on the water and he heads to Jerusalem for a feast and he's very popular with all the people. But the leadership, the high priest of all people and the priests and the scholars, instead of saying, is God doing something and we need to be in step with him, instead are saying, Saying, our jobs are under threat and they were jealous of his popularity and they were fearful that they were going to lose their power and influence and so they opposed Jesus in fact they looked for a way to kill him and Jesus is arguing with them and some of the people hear him and believe and they're circled around Jesus and he's still talking to the crowd but I envision Jesus in the middle with his disciples and the ones who love him right around him and then these others that he ends up talking to them over the heads of his followers it's recorded in John 8 starting verse 31 so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, I truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. That's not what Abraham did. Abraham, of course, is remembered for being a man who heard God's voice and believed God and did what God told him to do. He was not known as a man who heard God's word and then tried to kill the messenger. So he said, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and he's the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is tragic. The very people who had God's word, who studied it, who memorized it, they didn't live it. They were not of God. Do you know when I was a kid, my dad had a loud whistle, but it would really do, I mean, through the whole neighborhood, you could hear it. We'd be out playing, and that whistle meant drop everything you're doing, get up and run home as fast as you can. It's time to get dinner ready and for the family together. And you could be playing with your friends, and suddenly 
that you'd hear this big whistle, got to go. And, and you knew that you basically had to be home before the whistle was done. You know what I'm saying? And so, because kids didn't play inside in those days, you actually played outside with, with toys and dirt. Okay, and um, the whistle, my point is, the whistle from my dad meant nothing to the other kids in the neighborhood. Just to us. Because we're the ones who could hear it and know what it meant. If God's voice, if God's word means nothing to you, maybe you don't have that connection with him yet, is what John is saying. Because otherwise, if you hear God's voice, it's time to respond in a godly sort of way. And God's children hear God's voice. And here you've got the high priest and all of these others who've studied God's word, and, and, and they don't know God. God's not in them. Jesus appeared the first time to destroy the works of the devil, namely sinful rebellion against God. But who's your father, he asks. I know there's a difference because you can't change your uh, earthly father and lineage, but you can choose. Am I going to be a son of Satan or a son of God's spirit? Am I going to be a daughter of the devil or a daughter of Emmanuel, God with us? See, you can be around church your whole life. You can read and study the Bible. You can commit it to memory. If it never penetrates your heart, you're still lost in your sin. Come to Jesus. Give him your heart. I mean, Jesus came to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. And there's a third part. It was actually the first. I saved the best for last. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. He came to rescue the wounded and to love them and to adopt them and even more. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know Him. Now we're lifting up veterans today as heroes as well we should. But most veterans, even when they liberated people, didn't say, okay, I'm taking you home with me. I'm adopting you. You're mine. We're going to call you. We're going to give you my name. We're going to be in my family. In fact, most vets, they did their liberating, they did their work, and then they came home to their most adoring fans, the little people who lived right in their house, their kids. You know, you ever heard some, my dad can beat up your dad? Well, one kid said, well, big deal, so can my mom. <laughs> but dad was the champion. I mean, look what our dad is about. Such great love. He rescued us, he's saying, John's saying. He adopted us. He did more than you can do in a human adoption. He gave us his DNA. So put all your hopes on him. I mean, a proper response is I'm going to hope in him. I'm going to purify myself. I'm going to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to listen to God's spirit guiding my thoughts and my words and my deeds. And every day... Just have that close connection with him. God, what do you want from me today? Look at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as Jesus is pure. What's he talking about? We live between two great events. The first one was the coming of Christ into this world. God in human flesh coming to live among people. But there's a second great event, and that is the return of Jesus Christ to this world. So you ever been between something? Maybe between jobs. You know, you had the first one, and now it's complete, and you don't quite have the next one in focus and what's important. And, and, and what do you do in that waiting period? 
which by the way, I'm glad Tandy explained, I'm not retiring from South Shores. Because people asked me that last time when we mentioned something about my Air Force retirement. I'm working harder and having more fun and more challenges than I've ever had to say, okay, how do we keep us on the track and keep moving forward? And, and, and we're, we have a lot to cheer about, which we will next week at our annual meeting. So please be sure to be here. But when you're between things, you have to stay steady. You have to wait. You have to abide. You have to be patient. You have to stay disciplined, looking toward the future. Jesus is coming back, John is saying. Jesus is going to return to earth. Earth. It could be today. What's your internal response to that truth? If it's fear, if it's shame, well, then get ready and get right with God today. If it's excitement, I'm going to see Jesus face to face. I'm going to see all those we love who've gone on before, the people whose names we read today and last year and the year before and for the last two decades we've been reading people's names that way. There's a lot of people we know already in heaven and Jesus is going to come back. He has a second tour of duty to complete in this world. He died when he came on the first one. He returns as the supreme commander, the king of kings and lord of lords. John is writing this letter to this little band of, of church people. We don't even know any of their names. And they have come to faith in Jesus Christ in a hostile world. And the Spirit is in them, but the things aren't going so good. They've had internal conflicts that split their church. They lost friends in the process. Maybe even divided between family members. They split over the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Because some want to just say he's a good guy. But he's God. And John is saying, hold on, stay focused, see the situation from God's point of view because it's the only point of view that matters. Regardless how tough you have it now in the church, regardless if the world is bullying you because you believe in Jesus, Jesus is going to return in great power and great glory and he's looking for those who remained faithful when it was tough. When they didn't see him face to face, when they only had his Holy Spirit living in them and guiding them. So stay confident in Christ. Abide in Christ. Remain in him. And he's saying, practice righteousness. Make it a habit. Don't live like the world. Obedience to God's word and doing the right thing, those don't save you. You're not going to get into heaven on your own merits. That's for sure. But they are a sign that you've been transformed by the power of God's spirit, that you've been truly born of God, that God is your father. See what kind of love the father has given to us, John said that we should be called children of God. God's saying, those are my kids. God and Jesus rescued us from this world. God and Jesus has prepared a home for us in heaven. God and Jesus has taken us into his family and has adopted us as his own children. And more than that, God somehow gives us his own DNA so we don't stay just adopted. We, we've become truly his children because his spirit lives in our hearts. I mean, a person truly born of God has new wants and new desires, has a new heart, a new perspective, a new passion to please God. Was that your passion this week? To wake up in the morning and say, how do I please God today? How do I please God today? God, what would you like me to, to be today? Who do you want me? What do you want me to do for you? How do I please God we need to live as children of God, fully devoted followers of Jesus. I mean, we're in a real dogfight in this world, and we don't always win the fight with sin. We're always forgiven when we ask. John explained that in chapter 1. He said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just. He'll forgive our sins. He'll purify us from all unrighteousness. So don't give up trying. When you find that you've slipped up, 
Step up one more time and ask God to forgive you. Get back up and keep moving. God's not finished with you yet. He gives us the power to live as his sons or as his daughters in this world. And someday, when he appears, we're going to be like him because we'll see him as he is. What do you think it means to be like Christ? Well, let me give you three ideas. One is our lives are led by God's Spirit. Jesus was always being led by God's Spirit. In Romans 8, Paul explains it this way. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit who you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him, we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children Second thing besides our lives being led by God's Spirit is our lives reflect the light of Christ to the world. In Philippians 2, Paul explained, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then the third, we share now in the sufferings of Christ and we will share as co-heirs in glory in his inheritance. In Romans 8, Paul went on, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. We are in this waiting period before Jesus returns and we need to finish the work he's given us to do and to do it well. And Jesus came on a mission to take away sin and to destroy the devil's plan and to get us, to rescue us and adopt us and to love us and to bring us into his family. And he is victorious. He won and he will return victorious. And our only hope is to keep our eyes on Jesus and to live for Jesus because someday we're going to see him face to face. Jesus is the best. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word and the truth that we find here. We thank you that you have conquered sin and death. You have destroyed the devil. And you have demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that your love for us, you saved us, you restored us, you adopted us, you called us your own, you placed us in your family, you have given us your DNA now may we, by the power of God's Spirit, live that in our homes and at work and at play and wherever we are. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.